All of us have heard of Lady Godiva. You may associate her with fancy chocolate or with a naked woman on a horse. But how many of you know that she's based on a real woman named Godifu? Welcome to Footnoting History. I'm your host, Sam, and today I plan to summarize for you what little we know about the noble woman, Godgifu, who inspired the legend of Lady Godiva. Then I'll take you through the story of how her story came into existence. But before we get into any of that, I'd like to remind you that we will be doing our first ever episode based on listener questions. If you have something you'd like to know more about, I encourage you to visit our website, www.footnotinghistory.com, to fill out our form by May 31st. The episode will air in July. Now, I'd actually like to start this podcast with a note about names. In today's episode, when I'm talking about the legend, I will refer to my protagonist as Godiva or Lady Godiva. But in reality, there was no such person. The person who inspired the legend was named Godgifu, wife of Leofric, Earl of Mercia. Her name was a fairly common one, meaning good gift, and there were at least three different noblewomen with that name that lived in the first half of the 11th century, which has complicated the task of tracing our Godgifu. Moreover, while she was a woman of wealth and distinction, her contemporaries would not have referred to her as Lady, a title that was reserved for queens in the Anglo-Saxon period. In contemporary documents, she appears simply as Godgifu, or as Godgifu wife of Leofric, or as the Earl's wife Godgifu. In my personal favorite, the couple are recorded simply as Earl Leofric and his bed partner, which we are assuming refers to his wife, but who really knows? Over time, the name Godgifu fell out of fashion so that the people of Coventry, who claimed her as their benefactress, rechristened her Good Eve in the 15th century. This new name fit in well with the already established story associating her with nudity, just as Eve was naked in the Garden of Eden. Later, the name was glamorized and transformed into Lady Godiva, a name and title which would have been wholly unrecognizable to the woman upon whom they were grafted. So, what do we actually know about the historical Godgifu? Well, although she's better documented than the vast majority of women of her day, we don't actually know much. We don't know anything about her parents or her natal family because she first appears in the historical record after her marriage to Leofric, sometime before 1010. She must, however, have come from a wealthy family because she brought significant land with her to the marriage. She held substantial estates in her own right in Leicestershire, Warwickshire, Staffordshire, and Shropshire, which suggests that her family's base of power lay in northwest Mercia. It seems likely that she was selected as Leofric's bride in part because her family connections would have been a way for Leofric to expand his family's power and influence towards the west from its base in the eastern part of England. By the time of the marriage, Leofric was already established as one of England's most influential political players. 
although he did not yet hold the title Earl of Mercia, which only appears in association with him after 1032. But even before his elevation, Leofric held significant lands and substantial political influence in his role as Sheriff of Worcestershire. His family was both wealthy and resilient, and would thrive under Saxon and Danish kings, and even continued to hold power after the establishment of the Norman dynasty in 1066, though Leofric himself had died in 1057. As Earl of Mercia, Leofric witnessed the English throne change hands four times, and given his prominent position, he and his family often found themselves at the heart of major struggles for power. Monastic writers based around Worcestershire often portray Leofric, along with his father and brothers, as despoilers of ecclesiastical lands, which is to say they did not like him at all. This reputation stemmed from his role in leading a raid against the citizens of Worcester in 1041 after they murdered two tax collectors sent by King Hartha Canute. But Leofric is also remembered as one of Edward the Confessor's closest advisors, and monks from the East Midlands consistently described Leofric, along with his wife Godgifu, as generous patrons. Indeed, the couple appear to have been extremely generous in endowing religious institutions, though sometimes it's difficult to distinguish their actual charity from later forgeries citing these well-known and prestigious names. The only religious institution actually founded by the pair was Coventry Abbey, which was established in or before 1043 as a family monastery and endowed out of the estates of both husband and wife, but likely came largely out of Godgifu's personal holdings. According to tradition, the couple also gave significant lands to seven additional monasteries. But it was Godgifu who, according to Oderic Vitalis, dug into her own store of gold and silver to furnish Coventry with all of the ecclesiastical ornaments necessary for a great monastic house. By the time of the Domesday Book, which was compiled in 1086, Coventry was one of the 20 wealthiest monastic houses in England. This idea that Godgifu had control over her own assets is plausible. According to the laws under which she lived, noble women retained considerable control over household goods, the lands that came with them as dowries, and over the gifts that, by tradition, their husbands presented to their wives after the marriage was consummated. There is significant evidence that noble women in pre-conquest England held and disposed of lands on their own behalf. There is also some indication that the village of Coventry itself was part of Godgifu's inheritance, and therefore under her personal control. In other words, she didn't need to be asking Leofric questions about taxation. Now, we know almost as little about Godgifu's death as we do about her birth. She certainly outlived her husband's, and she is listed in the Domesday Book as a pre-conquest landholder. But that doesn't necessarily mean that she was still alive in 1066. We do know, however, that after she died, her lands passed straight to her grandchildren, which suggests that she outlived her only son, Elfgar, who succeeded his father as Earl of Mercia and died in 1062. Tradition places her death in the year 1067. She was probably laid to rest in Coventry alongside her husband, 
though this fact is disputed by the Evesham Chronicle, which claimed that she had been laid to rest in the Church of the Holy Trinity in Evesham, which also counted her as one of their benefactresses. We also know that Godgifu had three grandchildren. Eadwine, the eldest, became the Earl of Mercia. Morcar was elevated to the position of Earl of Northumbria. And between them, these two men controlled estates worth nearly 2,500 pounds scattered over 17 shires. In other words, they were still stinking rich. And her granddaughter, Edith, became a queen twice over. First, she was married to the King of North Wales, and the two had a daughter together before her husband was killed in battle facing Harold Godwinson in 1063. Thereafter, Edith married Harold Godwinson, yes, the very man her husband had died fighting, and she became the Queen of England when he took the throne after the death of Edward the Confessor. After Harold was killed, Edith's brothers moved her to Chester for her protection, but we have no idea what happened to her after that. I give you this part of the story in part because I think it's really interesting, but also because it demonstrates the continued importance of the family. It's actually quite likely that Godgifu's legend owes itself in part to the fact that she had strong connections to both the English and the Welsh royalty. So you see that we don't actually know that much about Godgifu, but she was, in her own right, one of the wealthiest people in England, and she would have enjoyed a comparatively high standard of living. She was also clearly pious given the number of religious institutions she chose to endow and the generosity of those endowments. And for at least a century after her death, that's all she was. When she appears in the work of William of Malmesbury, for example, she's described in fairly conventional terms as Leofric's saintly wife. The earliest extant sources of Godiva's ride first appeared in chronicles associated with St. Albans in the middle of the 13th century and they were presented from the outset as records of historical fact. Matthew Paris's version in his Chronica Majora, which dates from around 1250, is pretty typical of these early accounts. I'll actually read you a translation of the version which Matthew Paris places in the year 1057. This was, you may recall, the year of Leofric's death, but if you want to challenge your mental images, you can also remember that Godiva herself would have been at least in her 60s by this time, hardly a youthful beauty. And here I quote, This pious countess, wishing to free Coventry from an oppressive and shameful servitude, often begged her husband, the count, to deliver the town. And when the count rebuked her and ordered her never again to raise this subject with him, she nevertheless persisted in her request and relentlessly exasperated her husband with it, until she finally forced this answer from him. Mount your horse naked, he said, and ride through the town's marketplace from one end to the other when all the people are gathered, and when you return, you will get your demand. And in response, the countess said, And if I am willing to do so, will you give me your permission? The count replied, I will. Then, the Countess Godiva, dear to God, mounted her horse naked on the day agreed upon and, by loosening the braids on her head, veiled her whole body except her brilliantly white legs, 
and then she finished her journey unseen by anyone and returned rejoicing to her husband, who considered it miraculous. And Count Leofric, releasing the city of Coventry from its servitude, confirmed with his charter with the stamp of his own seal." End quote. These early versions of the story already had most of the elements that would make Godiva famous, including her compassion for the citizens of Coventry, her persistence in standing up for their needs, the ride itself, and her ability to remain unseen, which is attributed to the purity of her motives. But it is also clearly a product of its time. The servitude to which Godiva objects is generally assumed to refer to post-conquest taxation on towns. Moreover, Godgifu herself, the historical person, controlled the village of Coventry and would not have needed her husband's approval to waive onerous taxes there. But for the audiences of the 13th century, that was beside the point. So, where did the story come from? It's possible that the St. Albans chroniclers were writing down a story that had already been passed down orally, but it seems unlikely that previous chroniclers would not have decided to copy out this lurid tale. Alternatively, the story might have been invented by Roger of Wendover, who actually wrote it down before Matthew of Paris did, he just didn't write it as beautifully, which is why I chose to read you Matthew's version. But that would not have been consistent with Wendover's tendency to copy the work of others. He very rarely included original material in his histories. Then where did Wendover get the story? Well, there's a possibility that he might have copied it from Geoffrey's Chronicle, which unfortunately no longer exists, and unlike the St. Albans Chroniclers, was never widely copied or circulated. Geoffrey was the prior of the monastery at Coventry, and would therefore have had access to local myths and reason to create new stories about the town and about his own monastery's founder. Before the text was lost, it was viewed by two mid-17th century antiquarians who claimed to have found the story of Godiva in the text, though to be honest, their description of the story they found is more consistent with 17th century versions of Godiva's tale than those typically found in other 13th century manuscripts. If Geoffrey created the story, he may have intended it to be an allegorized conflict between the townspeople who are represented by Godiva and their concern with heavy taxation imposed by an authority over the town which is personified in the character of Leofric. But although there were numerous instances in the 13th century of townspeople objecting to heavy taxation, in Coventry itself, there is very little evidence of friction between the town and the earls of Chester. Coventry indeed was thriving, and it grew from a village of perhaps only 350 residents at the time of the Domesday Survey in 1086 to the fourth largest town in England by 1377. I would suggest that rather than being about taxation, as later versions would assume, this early tale, the servitude to which Matthew Paris refers, might have been part of Coventry's struggle to achieve political freedoms. The city was not incorporated or allowed to govern itself until 1345. It is plausible, therefore, 
that the story of Godiva was created in part to furnish a prestigious creation myth for the town, which would have provided Coventry with a distinctive identity. And the tale could be used to help argue that the town was entitled to its civil liberties. In this way, Godiva became, in essence, the patron saint of the town. Once the St. Albans historians had articulated the story of a Godiva, others were quick to pick it up, though they made some adaptations. In Matthew Paris's version, for example, we see Leofric as an annoyed husband who is trying to get his wife to just stop arguing with him already by suggesting something that is patently ridiculous. He is then tricked by her into doing something that she wants. In later versions, Leofric's character changes and becomes more mean-spirited. This later Leofric wants to humiliate his wife. There are additional changes as well. After the 15th century, Godiva's tale specifies that the great lady was riding to free the people of town from a toll, which perhaps cheapens her mission. The ending also shifts from the earliest versions in which Godiva rides through town but remains unseen through divine intervention to later versions wherein she orders the people to go into their home so that they will not see her nudity. The ending went through a third transformation so that by the 17th century, Godiva summons the town magistrates and officials to ensure that everyone stayed out of the town square. Instead of relying on the purity of her motives, this later Godiva uses her position as mistress of the town to protect her reputation. In the 17th century, Peeping Tom was introduced. At first, this was just a nameless person who spied on Godiva and was punished. Later versions specify that he was a poor tailor, which sets him up as her opposite, while Godiva is a pure noblewoman who must not be seen because she is unclothed. The tailor is a wicked, poor man who breaks the bonds of trust and literally makes clothes. Only later was he given the name Peeping Tom, and depending on the version you read, he was either blinded or struck dead for daring to look upon Godiva's body. Thus, her purity is protected, and his wickedness is punished. By this time, the story had taken many forms. It could be found presented as history in both Latin and English. It was told in poems and ballads. And it was portrayed in statues, in stained glass, and in painting. After 1678, a Godiva impersonator was even incorporated into the mayor's procession, which kicked off the annual fair in Coventry. In this procession, Godiva was usually reenacted by a young actress hired from a neighboring town. While there is evidence of a boy being cast in the role on at least one occasion, the actor never appears to have been a resident of Coventry itself. Once hired, the performer was paid generously for the day's work and given nude tights and a tight-fitting dress to evoke nudity. The town also paid for ornamentation, including scarves, to represent the protagonist's long hair. The procession also included Peeping Tom, who had by that time been established as part of the legend, but superstition prevented anyone from actually taking on the role. Instead, Tom was represented by a statue of 15th century origin which was dressed up in contemporary clothing also paid for from the city's coffers. Stories circulated that one time an actor had been hired to portray Peeping Tom and that that actor had dropped dead of mysterious causes the following day. 
The inclusion of Godiva in the procession was a huge success and drew massive crowds from as far as London, for by then Godiva had evolved from something of a local curiosity to a national heroine. The mayor and key figures of the town government participated in the pageant until 1829, but after that, political calculations prevented them from participating in the ritual. Godiva herself, however, continued to appear until the 1980s. The procession was revived on June 8, 1996, as part of the city's centennial celebrations. In the Victorian era, the legend of Godiva increased in popularity, to the extent where Queen Victoria herself even gave Prince Albert a statue of Godiva for his birthday one year. The Victorian fascination with Godiva is hardly surprising, given the contrast of her nudity with the rigid morality of the era and their tendency to enjoy and indulge in assorted medievalisms. In our own day, the name Godiva is commonly known, but her legend has become increasingly simplified, so she is remembered primarily for the fiction of her naked ride, and all mentions of Leofric, of taxation, and even of Coventry are often omitted from her story. In short, while Godgifu was an extremely wealthy and connected woman, recognized in her own day for her piety, she bears little resemblance to the Lady Godiva of legend. But the myth itself has value. In addition to lending a sense of civic unity to a rapidly expanding urban community, it has provoked centuries of amusement. Since 1926, Lady Godiva has also lent her name to chocolatiers who were explicitly inspired by the passion, purity, sensuality, style, and boldness of the legendary figure. There is also a Godiva Award for organizations dedicated to empowering women and a book award for adult fiction, which is probably for the best, because when all is said and done, while she is associated with a real person, Lady Godiva is fundamentally just that a work of fiction. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Footnoting History. If you'd like a captioned version of this episode, please visit our website, www.footnotinghistory.com, or check us out on YouTube. We hope you'll join us again soon.